Welcome back to The Podvocate. I am your host today, Matt Dorn, Editor-in-Chief. We are excited to be back on the air. We took a hiatus as our scholastic situation was in flux. All of Loyola Law's classes have moved online for the remainder of the semester. Our plans for the remainder have obviously had to shift. We can't record any more in-person episodes in the studio with our super-duper fancy equipment. All our episodes from today through the end of the semester will be over Zoom. And so we apologize for any lapse in audio quality. Like all of you, we're doing what we can to make the best of this unfortunate situation. We recognize that it, it's rough out there. There are students who have roommates who are having to ration desk time because they only have one desk in their tiny apartment. Some students are back with their parents. Some are with high-risk grandparents. Some, like yours truly, are now homebound trying to study with a newborn. People are having to choose between groceries and prescription drugs. Every trip to the grocery store is a gamble. People have lost their jobs with no recourse. This is April 7th, uh, the date of our recording, and as of today, the number of people filing for unemployment in the last two weeks exceeds the first six months of the Great Recession, and that's just for the people who are able to file claims. Everyone is overwhelmed, and throughout this, people are dying, and we're told the worst is yet to come. To the law school students out there, and in particular, the three L's who are weeks away from graduation, we are here for you, and we are rooting for you. For the rest of the semester, we're going to do our best to highlight the voices of your peers, professors, and community experts to bring you information and hope during this anxious time. If there's a topic you'd like us to address, please reach out to us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. With that, let's kick off the second half of our season. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're talking with a microbiologist, immunologist, virologist, super duper smarty pants expert on viruses. We'll discuss pandemics in general, COVID-19, its historical relevance, and what we might expect in the weeks and months to come. Our guest cut his teeth working on Ebola in West Africa. He has a BA in chemical biology from Berkeley, a PhD in microbiology and immunology from the University of California, San Diego, and is a year away from finishing his medical degree, also from UCSD. Liam King joins us from San Diego via Zoom. Liam, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Good. How are you today? You know, just that quarantine life. Same old, same old. <laughs> Liam, I, I gave a little bit uh, about your bio. Is there anything you'd like to add to the listeners to help provide some context as to your background and experiences in education? I guess, you know, part of my PhD, my PhD was almost entirely about um, Ebola viruses and, um, you know, related viruses. So definitely viruses that are known to outbreak. Um, and um, yep, I'm okay. happy to be done with the PhD recently. So, congratulations! Can you just a quick aside? What's the difference between what you've done, what you've worked on, your degrees versus an epidemiologist? So, an epidemiologist deals a lot more with understanding how events happen in populations. So, you know, understanding how an outbreak evolves, that would be something that an epidemiologist would be more involved in. My PhD almost entirely focused on uh, 
Ebola virus proteins and how we can create therapeutic antibodies to try to combat the virus, more sort of on the treatment end uh, than understanding sort of how populations move. Quick note before we dive in anymore, as much as Liam is an expert, uh, he's A, not the only voice, nor B, you know, is he authorized to speak on any organization's behalf? always consult the latest information from the Centers for Disease Control regarding health and safety information. Absolutely. So Liam, how does COVID-19 compare to your experiences with Ebola that you saw in Sierra Leone and the Democratic Republic of the Congo? All right, well, they're two different, completely different viruses. Um, and the you know way that that manifests ends up being completely different because they're completely different viruses. I was really fortunate to be able to spend some time in Sierra Leone and the Congo during my PhD, but I didn't go there during the outbreak, so I can't actually speak as much to the experience on the ground. There are a lot of people that did, though. Some big differences that I noticed, you know, a lot of it comes down to sort of the specific context. Ebola is a much more deadly virus, hangs in between 40 and 90% fatalities, and coronavirus, or this COVID-19 is probably in the 1% to 2%. This coronavirus outbreak, it's hitting almost every country in the world. The Congo and Sierra Leone are two much less developed countries. Sierra Leone had a lot of civil war trauma and wasn't necessarily their first time with a major devastating event, but because of that civil war, they're much farther behind developmentally. So handling a lot of these crises becomes a real challenge. Remarkably, there are a lot of really powerful similarities that you can see, I think primarily based on how the human beings are reacting to the situation and definitely concepts of panic, stigma, you know, the requirement of people to break their norms and their routines, those are all very well manifested, uh, both in Ebola as well as in this coronavirus uh, outbreak. Are all coronaviruses, and I don't know if I'm even saying this right, are they all zoonosis viruses, viruses that start in animals and spread to humans? Zoonoses, I think that was the word you were looking for, zoonoses. Yes. I would say probably not. There are a ton of coronaviruses out there. And the vast majority do not cause the disease that we're seeing today. The vast majority are probably non-pathogenic. Um, then there's also a subset that causes sort of the common cold. And the ones that cause the common cold definitely are the, are the majority of the coronaviruses that we interact with. And then you have these SARS, MERS, and SARS-CoV-2 that are definitely zoonoses that are present in the animal population and um, and in this case, the humans got them got the viruses from those animals. In this case, it it seems almost certainly like it was from bats. Do you happen to know of how we're able to trace it back to bats and not some other animal? Well, there's a couple things you can do. The main one is uh, you can look at genetics of the virus that's outbreaking. You can look at the genetics of viruses isolated from bats and you can compare them. And you can see that you know this, this virus is extremely related and has a lot of identity to a bat coronavirus. And so it is very likely that it came out of a bat. The other things you can do is you can go into the actual animal that you suspect and you can isolate its blood and ask, uh, do I actually find this virus there? These are more prevalent in non-Western countries where proximity to animals is increased, particularly more exotic animals. 
I hesitate to say, yes, that's true. But I think basically the more in proximity you are to animals you are, the more likely you are to get a virus that you're not usually exposed to or you know, any other bug that you're not usually exposed to from one of these animals and therefore get sick. It's not to say that this doesn't happen in the U.S. or in any Western countries. Um, spillover events like hantavirus would be an example. We've had a couple little outbreaks of hantavirus in the U.S. and um, that would count as a zoonosis that we got, and that's a very devastating disease. Are you aware of any awareness-raising campaigns in the kinds of countries where people have a greater proximity to more exotic animals to try and teach best practices for how to um, mitigate these kinds of viruses? Yeah, you know, I don't know any, the names of any specific groups off the top of my head, but they're for sure uh, campaigns of people, um, and in the Congo and Sierra Leone, you see this a lot, you, campaigns um, trying to ask people to not consume bushmeat, specifically monkeys, and because that seems to be where at least we think likely Ebola first came from was a spillover event from people eating either monkeys or bats. And um, there are a lot of groups trying to do that. I'm sure listeners, uh, the irony is not lost on them that we are all forced to stay at home because of people's proximity to more exotic animals. And we are all at home watching Tiger King about people being in close proximity to wild animals. Um, based on your education experiences, how does COVID-19 compare to past outbreaks, historical ones? I've seen in the media, They'll mention SARS and they'll mention MERS, but in terms of scale, the 1918 Spanish flu seems to be the one that is uh, most closely associated. Are there any other instances from the past that are analogous to the current situation? It's a little difficult to find one. With regards to a lot of flu outbreaks, flu, as we all know, can be extremely devastating. And the 1918 flu was probably the most powerful example of that. In terms of a non-flu virus pandemic, there aren't any that have gotten to this scale. The Black Plague, that's going back pretty far. That's not a virus, but that's sort of getting to the scale of at least the number of people infected. But obviously, both in the Black Plague and the Spanish flu, the times were very different. And I think that's a really key point because the Spanish flu, for instance, took a, the numbers not really exact actually but you know somewhere around maybe 50 million lives but you know that was also a time where there weren't any antibiotics people were dying of secondary infections and the level of medical understanding at that time was nowhere near what it is today i always hesitate a little bit with these comparisons because the outbreak that you're comparing to is is usually in a completely different time where we don't have for example facebook we don't have you know news that spreads around the world in an instant, say when Boris Johnson was sent to the hospital, I bet half the world knew in about 30 minutes. And that even in the 80s, or, you know, 80s and 90s, that really wasn't the case. I imagine that your answer would hinge on medical capabilities being different of 102 years ago from Spanish flu as compared to today. But I think that also the other side of that coin is that it demonstrates the lethality of COVID-19 and the fact that despite all of our medical advances today, lack of equipment aside, we're still seeing so many people fall victim to the virus and then ultimately die to, uh, as a result, either from the virus or from secondary complications. And so I think that's a demonstration of just how powerful this virus is. In sort of an extremely grim way, it's really fascinating, mostly because I think where we are 
right now. I would say we're the most medically advanced that humankind has ever been. But the scale of this outbreak almost comes down to human behavior. And this is sort of getting a little bit more into epidemiology, but we may even today be worse at sort of following directions and containing outbreaks than we were, I don't know about 1918, but you know, people are, are very free to do what they want these days and don't necessarily need too much uh, assistance to, to do what they want. Everyone has a car, everyone has the internet. You know, so I think what, what has made this outbreak a crisis I guess we still have a lot more innovation to go. Based on your experiences, what are the unseen attendant consequences of an outbreak? You know, what can people expect that under normal circumstances would go unnoticed that now will change? You know, for example, right now, food security doesn't seem to be an issue, but maybe if we're under shelter in place for, for another month, two months, despite people stocking up on food at Kotzko and whatnot, there's yeah. plenty of food. Is food security going to become an issue? Are there other things that, as, the, as we are all sheltering in place, that things that would, again, normally go unseen is now suddenly going to become a problem? Well, one thing I would definitely like to caution when almost anyone listens to advice about this is that there's no one um, who has in their lifetime, no one has experienced anything like this. No one has experienced a major lockdown uh, globally. And we're now here at about three weeks to a month of people being truly locked down. So in terms of people's opinion on what will happen, it's you know probably best to take it with a grain of salt. I think one of the things that surprised me, at least with the Ebola outbreak and sort of looking at what happened in the wake of that was people seem to start behaving very selfishly in a sense of, you know, very defensive and very uh, me before you. And this can manifest in ways that are really scary and awful. A small micro example of that is uh, this toilet paper phenomenon where everyone just suddenly decided that they needed all the toilet paper that Costco had to offer. And then all of a sudden, everyone, there's a lot of people without toilet paper. And um, it seems to be very little awareness that if there is a shortage of toilet paper and you take a lot, then someone is left without it. In Sierra Leone, at least, this was very clear in the Ebola outbreak that even if you didn't get Ebola, but if you were tested for Ebola, people would sometimes assume that you had Ebola. People were sometimes even just kicked out of their communities. And so a lot of that selfish behavior can have very powerful consequences on the lives of uh, citizens. And uh, it sounds a little bit harsh, actually, because, you know, I think a lot of this just stems from the fact that not everyone has a, a really good understanding of viruses and outbreaks and such. And so, you know, the, the, it can be extremely scary. And so a lot of the reactions are very, I almost want to say very normal reactions that may be survival based, but the consequences of people starting to behave in an extremely deeply protective manner can be very profound. And I don't, I, I hope we've seen the worst of it with the toilet paper here. It's funny you brought up, or not funny, but sad really, kind of how people respond in their relationships to others. And it reminded me of late eighties, early nineties when, and I remember seeing ads about AIDS, like, um, you know, after school specials, PSAs on AIDS and like, 
put the toilet seat down because if your butt touches a toilet seat that a person with AIDS butt touched, then you get AIDS, you know, and a lot of ignorance. Um, yeah. But even, um, you know, you wouldn't shake someone's hand if that person was suspected of having AIDS. And, and I am sure that the people in West Africa have a justified fear because of its lethality in the same way that AIDS was as well. Uh, and I think that, that there are parallels to that. Currently, the death rate is nowhere near what Ebola was, but I think it's the or unknown. It's the, it's the Donald Rumsfeld's known unknowns. We don't know the full extent of the damage of this virus. We don't know all of the ways that it can take hold of you or all of the ways in which it might be able to put you down. And I think that the, that fear can drive what would be otherwise very poor behavior is now, let's say, excused behavior. Yeah, it can be scary to watch. So we keep being told six feet away. Stay six feet away, you should be fine. And I've heard uh, from a number of places, if everybody on the planet stayed six feet away from each other, in two weeks, this would be gone. First of all, is that true? And second, I've also read that six feet's not enough. That, it, it, you know, that, that is too great a risk, that it's more of a, an arbitrary six feet slash two meters is, is more of this kind of out of whole cloth made up number, you know, from a more expert opinion. Is that really true? And is it even enough? I guess I'll go first with, would it be gone in two weeks? A lot of those questions are really basing in a ideal world. I always feel like sometimes people say, well, in an ideal world, and they don't really give a lot of gravity to how ideal that world has to be. And so, you know, if we all stayed in this sort of social isolation, if even in your household, you had stocked your room with enough food and, you know, you were able to use and you sanitize the bathroom, Yes, sure. If everyone was in isolation and everyone really didn't interact with any other human beings, this outbreak would be gone in about the time that someone you could maximally, maximally have an asymptomatic period, get sick, and then recover or, you know, or die. But you know, basically, if all the sick people do not have an opportunity to spread the virus, then the, there will be no virus spread. But the ideal world is so remarkably far from that, that it's, it's not really practical to think, well, if we all isolate, you know, because we had these questions of, you know, you have to, you know, you have these essential businesses, you have healthcare workers, you know, you, I don't think you want healthcare workers staying away from, staying six feet away from people for two weeks. Um, you probably, you know, if you have all the food delivery people, then, you know, if they're handling food and delivery, then, you know, that's obviously blowing by the six feet rule. Um, and so, you know, so these things are really difficult to do in practicality. But, you know, the point remains that the whole question here is, are we reducing spreading of the virus? And if you can reduce the spread of the virus to the point where if it is an improbable event that you will spread this virus to someone else, then the epidemic will slowly go away because every infected person will probably not in infect someone else. And then, you know, that's how an outbreak ends. You know, this staying six feet away from each other or staying in your home, those are all efforts to try to get us to reduce our risk of spreading it to a lot of people. Uh, that's, that's the whole idea behind it. And if everyone did it maximally, then yes, it would be extremely improbable that you would spread the virus to a lot of people, the outbreak would go away. This six foot rule, it's not super arbitrary. 
which I guess is comforting. Uh, my understanding is that six feet is about the distance an aerosolized virus will travel if a sick sick person coughs. But on the you know on the other hand of that is I th I think you know if someone sneezes and they're sick, I think an aerosolized particle can go much farther. You know, up to sort of thirty feet or something like that. I read in that paper. And but the six feet rule, I think, you know, some of the thought behind that is that six feet is a practical-ish number. Um, and if it, if it covers the cough radius, great. If you go to the store and you see people obeying a six foot rule, that, you know, that seems like achievable. You know, they put X's or lines on the ground so everyone stays six feet apart. I think if you were to tell everyone you must stay 30 feet away from each other, you know, I don't know that that is even really possible, or at least that just brings us to the point of everyone must stay at home. Which may, you know, maybe that's what we need to do to really get the message across because currently we're clearly not being successful at that. You know, it's something I always think about with this. And I think about it as, so six feet, you know, if could you get infected from someone 10 feet away from you? Yes, definitely. Is it likely? Probably not. I, I really don't have any data to back that up. But what I mean is that, you know, maybe if you think about it as we want to reduce the probability of an infection event, six feet seems to be a point where if you're more than six feet away from someone, your risk goes down dramatically. doesn't make you safe if you're apparently 25 feet away and someone sneezes right at you and they're sick, you're in a risk zone. But I like to think of it all as just these are ways to reduce your probability. And if we give you a six feet buffer, that reduces it quite a bit. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk more with Liam King about the American response to coronavirus and his thoughts on what's coming next. Stay with us. Liam, Dr. Fauci, whom most listeners I'm sure are familiar with, the administration's uh, infectious disease expert, said that until a vaccine was produced and mass administered, the threat from COVID-19 would not be eliminated. Is that because the disease spreads so easily while symptoms lie dormant? That's part of it. I guess what I would say is that I can draw a good uh, comparison here with Ebola. The, you know, there isn't a vaccine that is planned to be mass administered to the world for e Ebola. There are, there are some vaccines uh, in development. There is a vaccine right now being used, and that's great. But, you know, no one is discussing uh, vaccinating the world because a lot of us really have almost a 0% chance of getting Ebola. The reason for that is that Ebola is not as, as good at spreading as COVID-19. And so that's, that's a good thing on our fight against Ebola side. But, you know, on the, on the coronavirus side of things, we can, you know, it's obviously very possible in that you have these massive outbreaks, you know, more than possible, it's happening right now. And, um, and so, you know, the idea of mass vaccination of the world is, is a completely valid idea and is something that until you are immune to a virus, you can still get it. And, um, you know, that's, that's true of any virus or any, any bacteria or anything. So right now we're in a situation where everyone in the world is at risk of getting uh, coronavirus and everyone, you know, not everyone is at risk of dying from it probably. Yeah, I actually shouldn't even say that at all. There, there are plenty of young people who have gotten this and have 
died. And so, you know, every one of us is at a very, you know, a full-blown risk. So if you're constantly in a state of you could be infected and you are not immune, then yes, the, the threat is still there. So this is where, you know, Dr. Fauci, who's probably the best person to listen to in terms of his advice, he is saying that we need a vaccine and, and we need to make everyone immune to it. Otherwise, they, still, they can still get infected and they can still die from it. That's a totally true statement. And the fact that COVID-19 has this ability to cause these uh, massive global outbreaks means that we need, we need to make everyone immune to it if they want to. I mean, I'm not going to get into the anti-vaccine discussion, but because I assume people, you know, there will be people who won't want to take it. Everyone's aware about hospitals, local governments, states scrambling for ventilators, for personal protective equipment, for staff. Uh, for gowns, for beds. Uh, and this is all against the backdrop of an overwhelmed healthcare system. They almost kind of seem, I think, for some listeners and myself included, as these kind of abstract concepts. Um, things that, uh, when I've been able to have it really driven home for me, is when I've listened to uh, some kind of healthcare worker describe about, describe a line out the door uh, to get into the ER. Or I think it was in China about bodies in the just lying in the hallway because they had nowhere to go my question is can you paint us a picture if if i were to walk past an er in an overwhelmed healthcare system what does that look like i would say you could distill it down to an overwhelmed healthcare system is a system that simply cannot provide the care that they either need to or, or want to let's go back six months if you are sick I'm pretty confident that, you know, and you have insurance, that's a whole nother discussion, but you can go to a healthcare facility and they will deliver you the care that they are able to, to try to make you better. That is how a functioning healthcare system works. In an overwhelmed healthcare system, you cannot do that because you're either, you know, there are resources that are missing um, that's a, you know, a very vague way of saying that maybe you don't have enough personnel, maybe you don't have enough N95 masks, maybe you don't have enough of a drug. And there are, you know, when we talk about overwhelmed healthcare systems being scary, there are many healthcare systems in the world that are overwhelmed, um, it, that you can look at country in a lot of developing countries. There are healthcare systems there that are seriously suffering for resources and um, they're constantly functioning in an overwhelmed setting where the medical personnel there, they know what is right to do for the patient, but they don't have the finances and the patient doesn't have the finances and they maybe they don't have the infrastructure to get that care to the patients, even though they might know very well what the right thing to do is. So right now in the US, is we're getting closer to this Kind of situation, and there are some, you know, places in the United States where this is. I'm sure that the medical uh, personnel would say definitely we're completely overwhelmed right now. And there, there are many ways that COVID uh, nineteen can do this. One of the big things um, that has happened is you have heard about the shortage of N95 masks, and you know there's no doctor that can see a COVID patient without some sort of protection because. You know, they could get it and spread it to other people. And, you know, so if you're a patient, you have a respiratory disease, may or may not be COVID, 
you can't be seen by, by a physician if they don't have some sort of protection. You, they just, you can't do it. And so that would be an example. What would happen? I mean, if you, if you arrive at the ER describing or present as COVID-19 symptoms and the intake uh, nurse at the ER says, we don't have enough people, is she going to say, go home, get out of here? My guess is that if, if you were to get to that point, you probably wouldn't have an intake nurse there in the first place. But it, I think it probably is going to, it would be a slow march towards longer waits. You know, you might have, you know, getting to zero and 95 masks is probably is a different situation than getting to 10, so to speak, um, where, you know, but if you, if you have 10 people who are taking care of, let's say a couple hundred, you have, I mean, those 10 people are completely overwhelmed. So, but maybe you're one of those couple hundred and it's not like you're not sick. I mean, you need, you need the care and that's, one of the other things that is being talked about a lot in the healthcare community is that you don't have, um, you know, that all the other reasons you get sick have not stopped. You know, people, people definitely still have coronary disease, for example. People definitely still have diabetes. And um, very likely there are a lot of diseases that are getting worse right now because staying at home, for example, for mental health is a well-known uh, worsener of that situation. And so people can, and, but these these you know, these services are not being able to be provided right now to those patients because all the concentration is on COVID. You can't go to these healthcare facilities without risking increasing the spread of the virus. So this is, you know, this is where we come into the breaking of the, in an ideal world scenario, in an ideal world where we don't have this where where everyone's staying isolated, we still have people who have depression or abusive relationships or um, you know or very uncontrolled diabetes, and they need to go to the hospital and that, they need to blow by that six foot rule. You know our healthcare system is getting to a point where it's not meeting a lot of the needs, even though it's uh, able to meet some of the needs of COVID. It seems like the picture that both can and can't be painted in such a way because there are so many cascading effects of lack of nurses, of lack of personal protective equipment, of lack of ventilators. That And also, I appreciate you saying that it's a slow burn, that it, this is not something that's going to happen overnight where, and not to be sardonic, but not that we're going to have you know a World War Z style thing where you're going to have people climbing the walls of a hospital, beating down the door. It's going to be day one, the line is five people long, and day two, it's seven people long, and et cetera. And these cascading effects of, uh, and I'm glad you brought it up, that domestic violence is on the rise. Mental health is on the decline because treatment can't be administered. And I'm one of those such patients. Uh, I have had back and shoulder problems and those are all not, you know, these, this elective, it's not essential. I can't get any imaging on my back or shoulder. I can't be seen for any treatments. I had physical therapy this morning over Zoom. Um, it's, it's not really very good. No. <laughs> um, uh, but that's obviously non-essential. Uh, and so I, I think that it's hard to paint a picture of this from what you're telling me because there are so many cascading tentacular effects of an inability to treat this many people this quickly. Yeah. And, the, and you know, in the terms of the slow burn, that that's, you know, sort of both true and not true. There are, there you know, there is a, there is, it's a slow-ish burn, but still there, you know, I'm sure if you talk to any healthcare provider in New York, I'm sure they would say, I don't know how slow the burn was, but we became any healthcare providers usually working extremely hard. And many of them before this outbreak were overworked. 
throw an extra six or seven patients on them per day. And that already is uh, a crisis. And then, you know, if you get one of these surges, like we have with coronavirus, I, they, they are very quickly in a desperate situation. And so that's, you know, there are plenty of places that are definitely already in this overwhelmed healthcare system situation. Looking internationally, and based on your knowledge of what was done in Taiwan, Singapore, and Hong Kong, where the virus's impact at the beginning was, was fairly well blunted, what did those countries do right? And what did they not do enough of, which is why they're all seeing resurgences in cases? In the beginning, they, they did a really good job of some of the big concepts in, in epidemiology, basically, that they, you know, contact tracing, they were very strong with contact tracing, they were very strong with um, travel restrictions and people sheltering in place and sort of coming back to an earlier theme, they really worked hard to bring that probability of you transmitting an infection down as low as they could. South Korea was another country that had some experience with this, but a lot of these countries are, it's not their first, it's not their first go at this, you know, they had stars and you know they those threats were right at their front doors and so they put in place uh you know they had a lot of things prepared that made them more prepared for this outbreak hong kong for instance i, I know like something like one in eight beds uh in their hospitals were um in pressure controlled rooms and that was you know that makes a huge help for isolating patients and not having outbreaks within hospitals I think, you know, they, and I, I think in Taiwan, they're, they started instituting fines for people being out without being, without being authorized. And the fines were like $33,000. That, I mean, you know, when you talk about people who are so driven to get out and sort of retain normalcy in their life, if you tell someone they're going to have a $33,000 fine for going outside of their house, I think they're going to stay at home. That's extremely effective in an outbreak sense. You know, I, I can't comment on any sort of collateral damage of those of those policies, but you know, but at least in terms of the outbreak, those are perfect. Uh, so their cases are coming back a little bit. They're still nowhere near where the U.S. is right now. I think my my understanding is that they relaxed the travel restrictions and the rules a little bit. And most of this is coming from people that are coming back from vacation or people who uh, have traveled into the country and brought the virus back. So you know, it's but it's a if you relax all these travel restrictions that got you to where you are in the first place, then uh, then you you haven't sort of finished off the virus. And, you know, in any sort of culture, I mean, culture in sort of a scientific sense, in a culture phenomenon, where if you have if you have virus growing and spreading, if you bring it down to very low concentrations, it is not gone. <laughs> and so, if you bring it down to the point where you only have a dozen people infected. Well, if you restore the conditions such that those dozen people will probably infect more than one person each, well, then the virus is going to spread more. And that's a fact. I want to emphasize that in these situations, an ounce of prevention is worth like 10 pounds of cure. And so their reaction, their strong reactions very early made it so that they didn't get to the crisis situation that we are in right now in the United States. They were just much more prepared. Do you think that, and I remember it was, I want to say 2000, late 2009, when swine flu was yeah. reasonably prominent. Uh, at least there was a fair amount of awareness in the United States regarding swine flu. Um, do you think that 
had swine flu have more of an impact on the United States that we would be better prepared in, in the way that Hong Kong was? Good question. I don't know how to predict how the United States would have reacted to maybe a, a worse virus. I think that gets a little bit more into politics. I know that- We'll, we'll find out in probably a yeah. year or so from now. Yeah, that's an that, enormous question is how we're gonna respond to this because this is bad and uh, at least in modern times unprecedented, but it can be worse. There are worse viruses that are deadlier and spread faster than SARS-CoV-2. And don't don't tell us. We we, we yeah. we're already very <laughs> sick. People don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I I totally got enough that. problems. That's not the <laughs> no, there are. But anyways, so uh, but yeah, I I think that um, but I, I really think that you know those countries that are really well prepared right now, they made huge steps early on that were you know that were taken extremely seriously, which actually brings me to a point about following basically following orders i don't i you know i can't comment on the on pretty much any other culture other than the united states but the united states is especially bad the citizens i think are especially bad at following orders i think our understanding of free will and um, individualism and the sense of how i want to run my life i can run my life sure it's very strong which you know there's a lot of good things about that but then it especially in an outbreak sense, it's terrible. I mean, if you, if I tell you, you need a shelter in place at home and your immediate response is, okay, well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll take that into consideration and not, I need a shelter in place at home. Then, uh, then that's a problem. You, you, you're right. making it more likely to spread the virus. I think you're right. It runs afoul of our kind of innate Americanness of, you know, I'm going to do what I want. You know, that's, that's one of my privileges of being an American. It's an individual over the collective mentality, which in a number of ways is good and clearly in the current way is, is a bit rough. I was uh, watching footage. There was a, a birthday party in Los Angeles for a one-year-old yeah. that, um, you know, required calling the police. Someone probably saw the party and called the police and said, hey, they're congregating. And then I see the footage of the police standing, you know, you know, right next to each other, almost like riot police um, to try and get the crowd to disperse. Not only are the people now risking infection, but now the police are risking infection. I know that one in six uh, New York City police officers are out sick right now, which is, you know, just gutting the entire police force. And I think that's right. why to talk a little bit about, you know, or to bring it back a little bit to us being a law school podcast. I don't know this, but I would strongly suspect that that's why we're doing guidelines uh, and rather than rules and orders because it's not a rule unless it's enforced uh, right. and to get enforcement you need the manpower to do it you need the judicial apparatus to support that and that's that's just not there there's there's just not going to be a law enforcement component big enough to enforce anything uh, at least that uh, under what's currently there how are we going to keep everybody inside their homes that's uh, that's it's really tough well, here in San Diego, they have, I know that, I, you know, beaches and parks are closed and I know that they are issuing tickets to people who go surfing. So that sounds like it's definitely transitioned into the rural category. But to your point about Taiwan is, you know, if you issue me a $30 ticket, is that worth the risk of trying to, you know, catch some waves? Maybe. Uh, if you issue me a $300 ticket, okay, not so much. If you issue me a $3,000 ticket, no, I'll just stay home. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you 
think of rules in terms of carrot and stick. I think what's frustrating for a number of people and I'm hearing from you as well is that there's just no carrot here that would have to be part of an, uh, an ingrained element in the American collective consciousness of at times of peril, we need to put the society above our individual selves. We are seeing that in certain fields. Obviously, healthcare workers are doing that for all of us right now. And grocery workers are doing that for all of us right now. Yeah. But we're also seeing people who need to throw a birthday party for a one-year-old who will never remember her first birthday. <laughs> Yet you're yeah. putting, putting yourselves at risk and you're putting the police officers who have to now make you disperse at risk. Uh, your community is now at risk. That's a danger. And that is where this is tough. It's, it's really tough. Is there a country that you think has responded appropriately from the beginning and continues to? You know, South Korea gets a lot of praise. Their testing right. is 98% accurate. Doctors here are saying that up to 30% may be inaccurate. Uh, by March 12th, South Korea was testing 140,000 people per week. Uh, um, they're at 20,000 a day now. The U.S. is... Uh, testing 74 million people, uh, 70, um, sorry, there are U.S. is administering 74 tests per million people. Now, obviously, South Korea is a lot smaller geographically, but their urban density is greater than ours. Based on your experiences, what is South Korea doing right and what are we doing wrong? This comes down, again, to sort of a lot of the basic concepts of test, contact tracing, isolation. If you do not test someone for COVID-19, you do not know, you will never, you will not know if they had it or not. And then you will not know to what degree you need to isolate them. There are lots of people right now who are sick with what is not COVID-19. There's, there are plenty of people who have respiratory illnesses right now that are not COVID-19. And it may even, it, I don't actually know the statistics on this, but it may even be probable that you do not have COVID-19. But if you don't do the test, you will not know that. So what South Korea is doing, and South Korea does have experience with this because they had a MERS outbreak. And they, so, you know, they had had a lot of, they have had in, infrastructure in place for this, including people who are watching, people who are organizing response. Uh, so what they are doing is they're testing a lot of people. And if you get a positive test, they have a real reaction to your positive test, which is that they contact you, they trace your contacts, and they go down sort of the train to, to try to isolate uh, anyone who has been in contact with you. Again, they're just, they're, all of these come back to the idea of reducing the chances that you will spread it to more than one person. And uh, so they're, they're being extremely active in that regard. Our testing is definitely, and has been behind the eight ball for a long time. And um, they are, in the United States, we lost a lot of time because, you know, there's a lot of reasons behind that. Um, some of it came to not taking the virus seriously, and some came from other areas. But basically, if you test, if you test a lot and you test early, you can really go through the effort of tracing these contacts, and you can you can you can isolate them before they spread to a lot of people. That isn't a huge challenge if you have say ten people, but it becomes an insane challenge if you have a million people, you know, or if you have 500 in the United States, I, you know, no one knows exactly how many people we have infected right now. But if you have more than 100,000 people infected, I mean, imagine tracing all those contacts. It's insane. So South Korea is testing 
more of their people. And so then they're more able to trace these contacts and they're uh, more able to isolate the people who are infected. The United States is uh, failing at that. They're getting better. I mean, you know, this is, this, the thing is, sometimes it can be easily said that, you know, the United States is failing to do this. There are teams of people working unbelievably hard to get this testing it to improve testing and you know those efforts are bringing us to where we are right now and you know where we usually forget that there is a much worse case scenario where the efforts efforts of all these people didn't happen so the united states is, is improving their testing but without testing you can't isolate the people what about the current situation most frightens you that you aren't hearing people talk about there's a couple things all right so one clinically, there's a lot of things about COVID-19 that are, I don't want to say strange, but uh, were not expected. Uh, one of the things being that patients seem to be doing okay and then very rapidly become extremely sick to dying. And you know, there are a lot of healthcare professionals that have said you can literally watch them decline. Uh, you know, someone you've seen doing all right for a few days. You can literally watch them decline right in front of your eyes over a matter of hours. That is frightening because when you talk about treatment, it can be very difficult. You have people who are maybe the window of for treatment is pretty narrow, or maybe people who are a little bit sick, maybe after this is over, or at least after the peak of this is over, maybe they stay at home until they start getting worse and then they don't don't get the treatment they need. So, you know, any clinical disease where patients are manageable and then very rapidly become unmanageable is something that is, of course, frightening. And there are a lot of people trying to work on that in uh, the clinical realm. I think the other thing that we really, that I haven't seen a lot of discussion about is the possibility that this lasts longer than we think. There were plenty of people talking about it. I don't know if all the right people are talking about it. I guess what I mean by that is a lot of our administration, we're talking about, you know, where U.S. is going to be back open before uh, around Easter, which was a a nice soundbite for people, I'm sure, at the time. But what if, you know, what if you were to tell people who have never, you know, the the con uh, 10 years ago, the concept of being in locked in your house for a month was unthinkable. But, you know, definitely now that we've been locked here for a month, the concept of being in place for four months is also, you know, sort of more or less unthinkable. I've never thought about that contingency in my life. So, you know, if this does last longer than we think, what other what other events are going to come to pass and how are people going to adapt to that completely new reality? What question, similar to that, my last question, what questions aren't being asked that you think should be being asked, either by governments, uh, health experts, or the public? Questions that are being asked, uh, the scientific community is asking a lot of questions about the biology, treatment, et cetera. Questions that I guess aren't, I don't, I don't see a lot of addressing out is what, what do we do if that sort of contingency that I just talked about happens? What if this lasts a lot longer than we think? Because there's nothing about normal life that the virus would think to obey. You know, if, you, if we go back to normal life, 
the virus will still will still grow uh, until everyone's immune. And and you know why wouldn't it? You getting back to normalcy is not on SARS-CoV-2's agenda. So I think though the governments and the public need to be asking themselves, what if that happens, and how can we? How will we be okay? And how? And and I, I do mean that in the biggest sense of we, because I think a lot of the public is saying, "Well, how can I be okay?" And I can be okay if I have enough toilet paper for two years of diarrhea. I got like you know I don't know what, I, but you have to be thinking about how can my whole city or my state be okay if this goes on for four months. If most of 2020 is me in my house. And Tiger King only has so many episodes. I did hear there's a, a like a bonus episode being released this week. So yeah, the strike while the iron's hot. <laughs> I'm I'm sure by the time this airs, it will have been released, and so it'll be the new talk of the town. Um, yeah, I appreciate that perspective, and I think I know you've traveled abroad, as have I, and I do think that those experiences do contribute to um, a different perspective than I think. Uh, it's typical of many uh, Americans through no fault of their own of, you know, this is how I grew up. This is, it's me first. I, of course it's me. And I, I do think that shifting to a we over me is a, is a prudent move at this point and may very well become uh, a necessity in the months to come. What about the current situation most encourages you that, uh, that you don't think the public is hearing enough about? First of all, I think that in terms of on the scientific side of this outbreak, there are innovations happening that are absolutely unprecedented. Some some things that are just unbelievable. There is a, you know, this is really specific to my field, but uh, with regards to protein structure, but there is a lab that uh, one of the best tools for designing drugs is looking at structures of the proteins that the drugs actually bind. And because it kind of gives you an image of what what's happening. And this lab, you know, this is the McKellen lab, they went from the sequence of the protein to high resolution structure in three weeks. Now that is very frequently a years long process. And this is a, a, a critical part of addressing this, this outbreak and they did it in three weeks. I mean, you know, there is no way that people were not burning it at both, at both ends, working around the clock on that uh, to get that information out to the public and that you know in the scientific community there are so many people who are saying all right let's forget the rat race of publishing let's let's really just work together on trying to come up with anything that could be used for this and you know i'm sure the innovations of that are going to be felt for years and that's i mean that's huge in the medicine medical world um and i've seen this with a lot of doctors a lot of doctors are seeing patients now via I don't think they use Zoom. I think they use maybe a more secure video, video chat medium. But they, uh, you know, people are realizing that maybe we can do patient visits, and the health of the patient wouldn't be compromised if I do a visit like this. And that's you know, that's a change in medicine that some would some would say have been, has been well, we've been ready to have happen for a while. But you know that it we it's really hasn't been super explored yet. But now you're forced to do it. You know, you did physical therapy this morning. Maybe a physical therapist, you know, maybe a physical therapist is going to have to um, is going to have to see you physically. But the but there's a lot of areas in medicine where maybe that's not necessarily the case. And 
if is uh, assuming you're a healthy person, maybe 30 minutes, you know, or 20 to 30 minutes from your home is, is, is a perfectly fine patient visit and it's a ton cheaper. And so, you know, maybe the medical world is going to have a revolution based on this. And, you know, that's a pretty powerful silver lining. I think outside of the scientific community, also the number of people who have disappointed us in the, in regards to this outbreak is probably much smaller than the number of people who have impressed us. You know, when you have people who say, oh, there's a virus out there, why don't I put up YouTube tutorials on how to make your own mask, how to sew your own mask? What, that's a, I mean, that's awesome. You know, and you're the, you know, the person who, who there's many people who have done that. I'm sure many of them don't have any necessarily medical training, but they're making a huge impact on the lives of others. And so, you know, you don't have to look too hard in this um, outbreak to see the goodness of humanity. And so, so, you know, so that's, there's a lot of encouragement in sort of the team aspect in that regard. So I, you know, not all bad. (laughs) No, I, I agree. I, when I take the dog for a walk, I see there's a lot of people in our neighborhood who I'm sure some listeners have seen those little kind of like almost bird houses on some people's front stoops. That'll be like, uh, take a book, leave a book. Um, There's now take a pantry item, leave a pantry item. And there are um, take a game, leave a game, which are very popular. Lots of kids Um, will have little board games or little kinds of, you know, sports equipment um, because kids are home all the time and probably driving their parents. Absolutely insane. Yeah. Uh, I I I, agree I, uh, I don't know if it's in San Diego happening there, but in downtown Chicago every night, I believe it's 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. now, I guess, and seven's still a little too light out. Everybody in all the skyscrapers will start flashing their lights on and off um, to show their appreciation for uh, medical workers. That's awesome. And, um, you're absolutely right, Ben, and that's a great note to end on. The encouraging signs of our humanity throughout this has been really inspiring. Yeah, and uh, hopefully it ends mm-hmm. as soon as possible. Yes. Well, Not the Liam, humanity part. <laughs> <laughs> right. Liam, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise and candid thoughts. Yeah, I'm, you know, it's my pleasure. I think you guys are doing a really great thing. Thank you. Uh, I want to remind listeners to consult the CDC website for the latest information on keeping you and your family healthy and safe. And for more information on Liam and the research behind this episode, please visit thepodvocate.com slash blog. And a final note, in case you haven't heard it enough, stay home and wash your hands. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman, and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.